welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, Andrew and I had the chance to continue our conversation with Global Security Initiative Research Scientist and Global Institute of Sustainability Senior Sustainability Scientist, Wes Hirsch. You'll remember if you listened to our last podcast episode that we were talking with Wes about his PhD research that has to do with solar energy and specifically solar energy capacity and policy as it applies to Hong Kong as a case study. Well, we continue that conversation today, and he, on a couple of points, would recall back to his work that he did in Hong Kong, but we really turned the conversation to talk about energy transitions on a much broader scale. And as I said in the last episode, this is a huge, huge, huge conversation. And even with this part two, we're just barely scratching the surface. There's just so much to say about technology development on the innovation side, on the policy side, thinking about this from a national perspective, from a local perspective, but also very much from a global perspective. So this is an exciting conversation, and I'm really, really pleased that we're digging into it with not only Wes, but other uh, energy scholars that we work with around campus, including Clark Miller, who will be back to the podcast soon. As always, thank you for listening to Future Out Loud. You can subscribe to our podcast in places like iTunes or SoundCloud or Stitcher even. You can let us know what you think, and we really like to hear what you think. Uh, you can tweet at us at Future Out Loud. You can find us on Facebook, Future Out Loud. Or you can go to our website, futureoutloud.org. All of our previous podcast episodes are there. So as always, thank you for listening. And now on with Wes Hirsch, part two. Welcome back, Wes. Thanks. Good morning, Andrew. Good morning, Heather. So when we left left, last left, it would help if I could speak. When we last left, we were talking about your dissertation and we wanted to talk about energy transitions and you had a piece that makes that transition to transitions yeah for sure or at least provide some some context and maybe credibility for what i'll say next about transitions and some of the things we have to think about there wait do you mean that just having a phd is not (laughs) enough to offer you credibility i would like to think so but (laughs) the, the world maybe not uh, yeah, so one of the pieces, so I mentioned there was these, these kind of uh, three ways to look at this uh, as far as uh, geospatial factors, market factors, policy factors, and then three different scales, global, national, and urban. So at the global scale, one of the other key findings that I, I thought was interesting, so we, we talk a lot about, well, there's all this solar potential. We talk about five orders of magnitude, 10,000x of, of what we need, and, and how do you cover that? And I think Andrew brought up last time too, like, well, but wait a minute, what does that actually mean? Where is it striking? Where would we have to put solar panels, et cetera? Mm-hmm. So one of the things I was thinking about also is, well, the world is not evenly, the population of the world is not evenly distributed. So, you know, when you look and you say, well, this area out in the middle of the desert and nowhere is really good for solar. And it's like, well, that doesn't matter as much if no one lives there because now, and also, or 
it does, but you have to figure out how you're going to transmit it and then distribute it once you get it to population center. Mm -hmm. So I started thinking about, well, what if you started to look at specific, so geospatially specific, um, you know, where population densities actually are on the earth. Mm -hmm. So any, uh, you know, square kilometer, actually was looking at the one degree cell, so roughly 100 kilometers by 100 kilometers, how many people are there? Right. Then what's the solar irradiance there? So what's the the, the potential for mm -hmm. solar, right? Because you know a lot of sun a lot of sun shines in one area, and there's a lot of people, or maybe another area, and there's not. Um, and then could you meet all energy needs with just solar? Right. And I made the most constringent set of variables I could come up with. So and I'll describe those briefly. So one Wait, of the things I looked pause. at is constringent yes. a word? I think so. Because yeah. it should be. If is it's it not? Yeah. Did I make that up? <laughs> I love it. Constrained. Constrained. Um, did I really yes. make that up? And contingent. I, I think you, and contingent, yes. I yes. think you might have made that up, but constringent. Really? Yes. You know, wow. it's right up there I didn't even mean to make that up. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, strictest. Uh, oh, no, I love it. Constringent. Constringent. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Where were you? Surely I didn't. Okay, whatever. <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, so, yeah, the, the most difficult bar to pass, right? Because otherwise, I didn't want to leave it open to criticism. So one of the things I looked at, I said, okay, first off, I want to find out if there's enough solar to meet all energy needs, mm -hmm. not just electricity. Mm -hmm. right. So if everything got converted to electricity, so all transportation, all manufacturing, all industrial processes. Um, and also, you know, there's, a, a, there's always a big uh, valid kind of complaint with a lot of these studies is that if you look at, you know, energy consumption is not the same across the board, in the, uh, the, mm -hmm. across the world. Sure. So people in the U.S. are notorious for being gluttons for lots of energy consumption. Yes. So I just took all 8 billion people on the earth, where they lived, and ascribed U.S. consumption rates to all of them for wow. full energy consumption, right? So I said, if everyone wants to live like mm -hmm. Americans eventually and have cars and manufactured goods and, and air conditioning and heat and a heated pool, whatever, whatever mm -hmm. the... Okay, the, so this is pretty extreme. Yes. It, yeah, or even, you could frame it as being pretty conservative, right? To yes. say, here's what... Extremely conservative. Conservatively yeah, extremely extreme. conservative. <laughs> Those are right. real words, whether not like right. the other word I made That's up, right. apparently. So then there was one more factor, too. And looking at... Right now, we talked last week about the, the conversion rate. So just because so much sun's striking the earth doesn't mean that panel can convert all of those photons into electrons. Right. So right now, you can it's pretty consistent. You can get 20% or maybe 21% There's uh, of conversion factor. There's others that are higher. I use 10%. Okay. So, so there's no panel on the market that's less than that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. So given all those constraints, which again, extremely, extremely constraining. And then also uh, my first kind of bar was you can't blanket the your, you can't blanket every your entire city with solar panels, right? And black out the sun. So at a minimum, my first order magnitude constraint was one tenth of surface area. Okay. Uh, at a minimum, so mm -hmm. okay, and and you can have values that are greater. So all those constraints in. What's the best way to put this? If you live on the surface of the Earth on land, there's a ninety nine point eight percent chance that one hundred percent of all energy needs can be met with just solar alone, with just ten percent conversion rate at U.S. consumption so, rates. Wow. Just to be clear. Yes. Um, we could build um, a U.S. industrial city pretty much anywhere on Earth um, and power it by the sun, in principle. Maybe. I don't know that. So I'm not claiming that. Okay. Potentially. Okay. I'm saying any city that currently exists 
Okay. Any anybody that currently exists anywhere on the Earth. There's a few tiny little dots on the Earth where this well, is not, not quite the case, right, right? Right. And those are typically high population areas that are that also uh, suffer from poor solar irradiance, so not a lot of right. sun. Okay. Okay. Yes. But if you're standing on the Earth, like I said, 99.8% chance that you're not in one of those areas. Right. Okay. Um, so so what anywhere would, else on the Earth. Just to make sure that we're all on the same page, one of those high population areas with poor solar irradiance would be a place like Hong London. Uh, London. I'd have to look. There, the there were actually 28 spots on the Earth. Oh, okay. um, they were all cities, as far as I could tell. London may have been one of them. Hong Kong was definitely one of them. Osaka was definitely one of them. Okay. So there's a couple other places. Now, that doesn't mean... So, so it is a combination of population density yeah. and solar radiance and how much energy. Yep. Now, and like, not, not the energy, but, but the population and the solar. Yes, yeah, and then what okay. you convert. Yes. Now, you can start to look at other things and say, well, use a more realistic conversion rate up to modern standards. That would mm -hmm. that would get you a lot more. I just wanted to establish a baseline, sure. right? Sure. Yes. Yeah. Um, also, too, that's for fully distributed. Mm -hmm. So you could also say, well, what if right next door to that, there was a lot of open area where you could do solar, you could sure. do wind, and this is yeah. only solar too. What if you did wind? What if you did, you know, there's a lot of other ways you could solve this, right? Yeah. So, so this seems to be the, the first step, sort of proof of principle, saying that yep. if we transition to um, sort of fully solar power, um, we could do it in most places. So the journey is difficult, but the end point is plausible. Yes, and if you take it up another order of magnitude, I said, well, what if you only blanketed one one hundredth of the surface area, okay. and okay. you're still in like the high ninety-eight percent? Wow, right? Okay. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it's just wow. it's an amazing amount, even if you have a yes. populous area and whatever. So, so the reason I bring that up is because when you start thinking about, so this is for purely distributed, right? Mm -hmm. And so this is where I think it gets interesting for talking about a transition. Mm -hmm. So if you if you look and you say, well, our current um, on electricity, and you could you could argue this for energy writ large regime, um, the way that's set up, um, whether or not you want this transition to happen, you, you're going to have to deal with some things that are extremely uncomfortable. Right. And so let's take the the, the instance of a utility, right? Provide electricity for people. Um, there's this notion of the utility death spiral, and I, I didn't coin that. There's um, other people that are, there's actually other people here at HU that have written on that, and other places as well. This has been brought up for more than a decade. It was kind of laughed at, and now it's taking, being taken a lot more seriously. So the notion is this. Let's use the three of us as an example. Let's say uh, Heather's very progressive, and she wants to get solar energy, and it costs a little bit more, but it's worth it to her because of values, right? Sure. So you go and install solar on your roof. You get a, a Tesla battery wall, so you can do storage, and maybe you get a nest, and you load balance, and you do great things. Mm -hmm. You don't necessarily defect from the grid. You're okay. still grid-connected. Um, but you're using far less energy from the grid than what you were because you're prosuming or consuming things that you produce, right? Sure. Um, there's, I've seen there was a report by the, the consulting company McKinsey. They called this partial grid defection. Uh -huh. um, this is, that term is not defined in academic literature, um, and there hasn't been a good term for this. I've, I've kind of uh, quaintly called it grid sippers. Okay. You're sipping like from the grid. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, I tried to hashtag that. We'll see if it catches on. So <laughs> as far as I know, I coined that. Uh, maybe someone else. Like, no, I said that first. But the idea is that you're still connected to the grid. You're still receiving the benefits of the grid. And that, like, if um, you know, there was, uh, let's say, you live closer to the eclipse or the the eclipse yeah. that's coming up, and you didn't get solar, or there was some kind of storm or whatever else. You, so you sip a bit. Yes. Yes. You're right. Yeah. You sip a bit more, right, yes. or less. But normally you're sipping less. So the way utilities are constructed is for the most part, and this is fairly true across the world actually, um, and certainly true across most of the US, is most of the bill when you pay for electricity is the what you consume, mm -hmm. right? So the more kilowatt hours, which is how this is measured in power, 
that you consume, the more you pay. And there's a connection fee that's pretty small and some, some other fees, but those tend to be small. And the, the reason historically utilities have justified this, they said, well, if you're poorer, you can try to conserve energy consumption in order to reduce bills. So this is the best way versus if we loaded it the other way and made 99% of your bill, you know, just the connection fee and then didn't pay attention to how much you consume, then it would be a different model. Mm -hmm. So because of that now, so now you're, you're there. And also too, the way utility companies actually make money is by building assets, but that's a different story. Okay. Um, and they're, they're also almost universally, this isn't universally true, but it's pretty universally true, they're regulated so that they say, okay, you have uh, operating costs and then we'll allow you a profit. Um, and the regulatory agency that grants utility license to, to serve electricity in there, and for some reason, universally also, I mean, this is true here in Hong Kong, it always ends up being around 10%. Mm -hmm. I guess we all just decided as a species that, that was a good rate of return. And right. there's some variance in there, but that seems to be pretty common around that area. So you're, you're now uh, benefiting from the grid. Um, you're consuming very, very little, but the utility still has to have the cost to maintain the power lines and to have the generation assets and do different things. They may have to produce a little bit less, but if you look at the breakdown of what retail electricity costs, um, about 60% is generation, uh, actually a little bit less than that, and the rest is transmission and distribution. Mm -hmm. um, so they're still having most of the costs um, and less revenue because Heather is now not paying quite as much for, for electricity as you once were. Right. So this, and by the way, we talked last week about how solar keeps getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper exponentially, batteries keep getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper exponentially. So now it gets to a point where, you know, the utility's taking that and they say, well, but there's there's not a lot of people like Heather. You're very progressive, you're radical. You're actually paying more for electricity now. We don't really have to worry as much about you. Mm -hmm. um, but now it gets to the point where Andrew's starting to look at it and you're like, you know, I've done the math and with the investment, if I get this financed, it's actually gonna be the same price. Right. Right. And it'll be right. green, so I don't have to you know, consume coal-burned electricity or some other form. So now you're, you're like, yeah, I'm gonna do this. More and more people start to do this and also you don't all happen to live next to each other so the grid can't the grid operator or the utility can't treat your neighborhood differently because you right. live in yes. little pockets everywhere, right? Yeah. So the whole grid still has to be maintained, the whole generation profile mm -hmm. for the mm -hmm. most part has to be maintained, it's the load has to be print maintained. But now it's less revenue again. Yeah. Yep. And that keeps happening. So eventually it gets to the point where the utility has to raise rates. Sure. Um, now we haven't seen strong evidence for the, this directly being affected this way, but it's inevitable because... Well, well that's right. Yeah. I'm not sure we're at that tipping point yet, but, but you've got to get to the point where if there's not enough revenue to cover the, the infrastructure, you've got to find some way of bringing in that money. And of right. course, the more you charge for electricity, the more people you force off the grid. Right, mm -hmm. and that's, that's the utility yes. desperate. That's the that's concept. Right. So yep. you force, and then it becomes more advantageous. Meantime, solar and batteries are getting cheaper at this mm -hmm. alarming rate. And, and in fairness to utilities, right? I have these conversations a lot, and they're usually with other energy nerds, and maybe it's on Twitter, or maybe it's in person or in conferences, et cetera. Even for the people, particularly if you're sustainability-minded, I, I hear a lot, well, these utilities are evil and bad, and they don't want to change, and they're set in their ways, and you know, good for them, they're going down, that's good, the man's going down. So I'm, <laughs> I'd say a couple <laughs> apart, things. Apart from the fact they keep things running. They keep things running, <laughs> yeah. and also, running, too, yeah. in fairness to utilities, We've asked them to do this, yeah. yes. right? And I don't mean just like yesterday. I mean for a hundred years, at least at more than sure. hundred years in this country, we've said this is the model we want to serve the most people. Mm -hmm. Right. And many other countries, most other countries around the world, have adopted a similar model, a similar business model, right? And we've uh, there's almost like a um, business Darwinian selection that's going on. Like when you look at like well, who gets selected to be CEOs of utility companies? Who gets selected for the board? Who gets selected for senior management? people that are just 
keep it steady as she goes. We've yep. always done it this way. It's always yep. worked. Yep. We've always grown. We've always had great rate of return. Um, and then because of that, one of the other things is that many uh, retirement portfolios um, and, and other uh, mutual funds and other things have invested heavily into utilities because they're like, these things are rock solid. They've that, always been perfect for that, like that decades. Of but but yes, now you're getting to a, 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 a fairly sort of conventional innovation transition yes. where you've got to have that, that disruption between the status quo um, and then step change to the new system. Yes. And, yep. and you see this repeatedly and it's it's at the heart of the ideas around disruptive innovation. So exactly. and two other data points, because if, if you're listening to this, or you're thinking about this and you're like, okay, that sounds interesting, but that won't affect us for decades or 100 years or our grandchildren's grandchildren. So right now, the cheapest form of energy, electricity, that's ever been generated on the planet through what's called a power purchase agreement, and mm -hmm. I'll get into that, mm -hmm. was uh, the, uh, the power purchase agreement was put out in Abu Dhabi. Any uh, type of electricity generation could bid for it. So if you had a coal plant, you had a nuclear plant, you had a solar plant, you had a wind plant, they would just deliver us the cheapest wholesale electricity you can. Um, so a group called, uh, actually a, uh, two groups, one Jinko Solar and then a Japanese company, that, which is a Chinese company and a Japanese company that worked with them for this particular deal, mm -hmm. had the bid of 2.42 cents per kilowatt hour. Um, that is the cheapest electricity that's ever been generated in the history of the world by any technology. Mm. Okay. So nuclear can't come close, it's about half the price of coal, nothing, nothing's even come close. Right. So when we talk about power purchase agreements, so that's where uh, the the retailer is, and essentially the, the the middle market, I guess, um, the utility, mm -hmm. says we're going to deliver electricity to the customers. We want to buy wholesale electricity from anybody who can produce it for mm -hmm. us, right. um, and we want a guaranteed rate for most of them are twenty years. So this is most twenty years. Right. Um, we don't care how you produce it, but you're going to sell us electrons at this rate. Yep. Um, and anybody can bid that this wants to bid. So there, it's a bit more complicated, but that's the gist of it. So any of these people can put in. Um, there's a lot of a lot of times I'll get kind of feedback about well, yeah, sure that's a real low rate, but that hasn't calculated in operation and maintenance, or that hasn't calculated. I'm like, well, the company bid on it. I, well, I was going to mm -hmm. say, yeah, mm -hmm. surely yeah. that must be there. They yes. could be crazy, right? So then right. they're like, well, maybe that is one crazy company. So the other thing about that Abu Dhabi one was that the five top bids were all under three cents per kilowatt. Right. 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 So if there's one crazy company, apparently there's literally a dozen of them. Right. Yeah. Um, so then you look at closer to home, um, the cheapest that we know of on record for, you know, there's still an issue of intermittency, et cetera. The cheapest bid for solar plus storage, mm -hmm. um, so in this case it was solar plus, or actually the cheapest, we should say on-demand energy source, because it was competing with anybody else, it happened to be solar plus storage, was for Tucson Electric Power. Um, and this PPA had just gotten that uh, just a couple months ago, I believe. This was 4.5 cents per kilowatt hour. Okay. Again, cheaper than coal, cheaper than most other forms of generation. This is yep. capture from the sun and storage. And again, it's a PPA. So mm -hmm. when you talk about like, well, what what is it going to cost to replace the batteries eventually? I was like, I don't know, but I'm assuming that company right. bid on that. Factor that of in. course. Yes. Yeah. And by the way, and also presumably factored in a profit on but, top of but, that. But, yeah. so, but now you're looking at, at two models. You're, yeah. you're looking at the model of large, mm -hmm. um, effectively, suppliers of electricity who work out how to do it cheaply mm -hmm. using mm -hmm. renewables and working within the existing um, infrastructure, also right. moving it along slightly to give the consumers value for money with uh, different power sources. So you've got yep. that model versus the distributive model where consumers yep. have their own generating um, sort of little sort of areas, things. Right. Totally. And, and, and so the, the, I mean, both of them are a sort of a move 
away a little bit from where we are. The, the distributed one mm -hmm. is the, the transformative or the disruptive um, innovation because there, there the questions are, well, if we have too much move that way, does the whole system collapse? And all of a sudden we realize that people who can't afford solar cells on their roof don't get electricity. Right. Or they have to pay through the teeth. For it. And just for the purposes, because we are scholars in this room and because we are at a university, I think it's relevant to talk, to realize that this is in some ways coming full circle. So electricity, right? And well, so the generation of power in this way was an entirely distributed process. And only in the 1880s, right. when Thomas Edison started by understanding how to disrupt the how to disrupt power generation and understood that creating the grid system right, right for electricity in order to you know bring to market his incandescent bulb yes. and lighting systems right um, so 1880s to we're in 2017 now can, can I is, just point yeah. out um, Heather did go to the the bookshelf and pull out the book that she's An got in front of her book. as she goes through this indeed yes. and and just in case anybody's wondering it is Viva Bikers of Bicycles, Bake Lights, and Bulbs for the Theory of Socio-Technical Change <laughs> right. to ground my academic credibility. The, the other two people, uh, throw out two more names, one being Tesla inventing alternating currents that helped with transmission, sure. and then mm -hmm. the other big one on the business model innovation side was Samuel Insel who came up with the idea, who's credited with coming up mostly or driving the idea for the vertically integrated utility. Yes. Right. And, and right. again, to your point about distributed. So to circle back to one thing Andrew said as well, I, I think... I think you're correct in that the distributed, and I'll talk about about that a bit, is one model for disruption. I think there's actually a couple areas that are coming together for disruption. So for one, I think it's interesting, um, uh, I'm trying to think now, Michael Weber added uh, UT Austin made up this point. So it's very interesting that we call it distributed when the solar panel sits right over your house and we call it central when it sits like 100 miles away right. from you. Yep. Yep. It's like that's actually the locus of power. It's not really about where it is in relation to use. It's kind yeah. of an interesting wording, and I think there's like lots of new words we have to invent for some of this. Mm -hmm. The other thing on the disruption side is that, so yes, in the the distributed um, piece for individual rooftops, right? There's a there's a disruption factor that's taking place there, particularly with this concept of utility desk bar. That's not the only threat. And I'll get to the second one. But the thing I would say is a lot of times, like when you talk about what's going on with Jinko Solar, and you say, well, yeah, they can do that because they built this massive, you know lots and lots of megawatts array and there's all these economies of scale. Yep. What's different about solar than, and I think I mentioned this last week, than every other form of energy right. is while the technology is roughly the same, the panel's roughly the same, and, and those economies of scale that drive globally for, you know, now we're producing all these more solar panels because we're doing these big, you know, utility scale, multiple megawatt production, uh, uh, you know, installations, mm -hmm. the individual homeowner who's thinking about buying rooftop solar, it actually gets more affordable for them right. as well. Yep, yep. Yes. So now there's a lot of soft costs that go because you have to have someone that install it on your roof and there's, you know, you have to connect and there's things that go on, mm -hmm. but the, but even that, that does start to but, but, piece, but it drives down prices. You're, you're exactly right. So you don't have the same sort of economy of scale that, as you do with other forms of electricity or power generation. Agreed. So yeah. two, I guess two other places for disruption is the other one, you know, we talk about PPAs. The other people who are doing PPAs are large companies. Mm -hmm. So you see this all the time with uh, Google's a, a clear example of this, Apple's, well, a lot of the tech companies, I guess, but there's others as well that are saying, well, we're 100% renewable. So they're doing that through two things. One, something called renewable energy credits, which is a bit uh, geeky and interesting. But the other one is they're doing power purchase agreements. Um, yeah. ASU has been involved in some of those as well. Um, the I think it's Red Rock is an example of this, where we partnered with... 
APS and then um, was, was it Amazon or PayPal? PayPal, I think. That sounds right. Yeah. So we looked and said, well, we're going to build a massive solar array somewhere, um, and then we'll get the credit for this. You know, this new. Uh, we're not building. APS is building it, but we're we're helping um, and coordinating with that so that Arizona can claim Arizona State University can claim that. Um, you know, we're 100% powered by renewables eventually. Mm -hmm. I don't mm -hmm. think we're there yet. We're getting close. So when companies do that, like there's some interesting cases in Las Vegas, I think it was MGM Casino, where they mm -hmm. said, look, we're at a point now where we think we can just manage all of our own energy. Um, and the energy, and they were like, we're going to defect as MGM. Right. Um, and we can purchase this off the market or we can do it ourselves. And they have different ways they're going to do that. Um, the utility company in Las Vegas sued them to say, no, you have to be our customer. Wow. Um, and and I don't remember how that turned out, but the issue, the, the yep. big takeaway for me was that there's disruption from those areas as well, yep. which, yep. which it's not just, you know, when it's just West that wants to put solar panels and I'm, I'm fighting with my utility company. I may not be, but if I am, you know, if they're trying to put up, that, I'm up against a very powerful force. Right. When you're right. Google, you have a little more leeway, right? That's, you can start to, right. yeah. you can't be ignored. And so... Um, or, you know, all these other large companies. So that's a disruptive force as well. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of companies who are thinking about that. There's even a third layer of disruptive force, which is almost at a political layer, social political layer, where, um, you know, as far as I know, it's still ongoing, but the, the case of XL Energy and Boulder, Colorado, where the entire city said, we're going to municipalize the grid because, mm -hmm. and, it, and this was 100% driven by, they went to XL Energy and said, we want less coal. We want less mm -hmm. of our electricity. Actually, they wanted no coal generation and, and other things. They wanted more renewable. And XL said, well, we're meeting the, the Colorado Renewable Portfolio Standard, which we talked about last week, which is set at the state level, saying you have to have this X percentage of, of renewables in your portfolio. And they're like, we're meeting that. And they're like, that's not enough. And they're like, well, whatever. You don't have a choice. And they said, yeah, we do. We're going to municipalize the grid and take it from you. Right. As a, as a mm -hmm. citizen's, mm -hmm. you know, a boulder taking this over. And there's... As far as I know, that's still in the courts right now. Okay. Um, but again, now that means as a company, like you have to spend time, or you could, or you could innovate your business model, which is, if you follow me on Twitter, I, I scream that a lot. Um, but that's a different topic. Uh, you could start to think about, well, we could go try to fight this politically, and we could work with politicians, and we could try to stop net metering, we could try to stop uh, you know, large-scale uh, companies from defecting or, or purchasing their own power. Um, but it just gets harder and harder and harder yes. when solar keeps and batteries keep getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper yeah. and the energy is abundant. So. And, and, and that's when you reach the tipping point. That's right. Um, so, so a number of things really intrigue me with this. I, I think you can make a compelling argument that we're going to see a transition towards uh, renewables and solar predominantly. So mm -hmm. sometime in the future, you're gonna, things are going to settle down and you're going to see that as... Uh, uh, dominant or a large source of, of the electricity that, that the power that we have, um, but this transition period is the intriguing one because it can, yeah. can go a number of ways. It That's can right. be either really messy yeah. or it can be really smooth. Um, oh, um, let's uh, be real here. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But so, so what interests me is, do we? I mean, what's sort of the social responsibility here? Do we just yeah. sit back and watch the train wreck and say, well, something beautiful is going to come out of it at some point? Mm -hmm. Do we try and make sure that there isn't a train wreck, but we've got a sort of controlled sort of crash? Um, what do we do? And who are the people that really lose out in this process as well? I'm guessing it's not um, the Heathers of the world who, as we now know, because we're said, are uh, going to have the, the solar power and panels on the roof. I'm I don't guessing know if that's it's true. That was so, not, I, I, well, I know. I know. I'll, it's tell, you, belief, I'll but, tell you, but, we've looked at twice into putting solar on our roof. Right. And my home is was built with a tile roof. And mm -hmm. even when we had to replace the roof, because these things happen in you know in the desert 
putting solar on a tile roof invalidates the, you can't get a warranty yeah. on your roof. Mm -hmm. And when you live in a place that has microbursts over your home at yeah, least a couple times a year, yep. that's a lot of it roof is, yes. to replace yes. without, yeah. you know, a yeah. warranty. But, so, so actually maybe you are in one of the vulnerable populations, but, I, but I'm really interested about sort of how do we do this? Do we just mm -hmm. sort of let things happen and accept that some people are going to be really hurt by this yeah or are we proactive or and i'm not quite sure who the, who the we is here yeah um is society proactive in trying to make sure that this isn't a train wreck yeah so i think yeah i think you hit the nail on the head on what the relevant question is so i mentioned this a bit last week i'll, I'll go back to just for a minute to hong kong so this gets out to like who who is the we in this right. sentence right and then and what what's our where do we want to go with this that question as far as social policy, I don't think is asked enough or in any level of sophistication. And so what I mean by that is we go back to the example of Hong Kong and how there was this huge drive to, um, or, or huge, it wasn't even a drive, it just kind of was, that mm -hmm. this was a purely economical question. Right. It was purely about economics and, and stability of power flow, right? Mm -hmm. And that those two things mattered and nothing else or very little else did. And anything else was a nice to have, but not really important. Right. Um, if you don't reframe that into what is the the social value of the energy paradigm that you want to see, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Because if while it's very geeky and interesting and fun for me to talk about, well, these price performance things are happening and solar's going down, and this is very interesting econometrically, et cetera. Um, at some point, you're not. I don't think you can successfully get through that transition until you start to say, wait a minute, there's also a huge social value here. Yeah, that's right. Um, and if you start, uh, let's say, you know pricing that in, quote unquote, to the to the, the factors mm -hmm. on how you make these decisions, I think you would have more rational decision making when it comes to how you progress into the transition. Um, if you keep ignoring those and you keep saying, well, this is just a numbers game. And then when the numbers get flipped and you're like, oh, well, we're at this tipping point. I mean, it's not really a point. It's just some weird nebulous area where we're like, we don't know what's beyond that. I think, you know, to, to be geeky and academic again, I think that's by definition, Kuhn's definition of a paradigm shift. Yeah. Right. Cause you can't, I personally, when I look at the, maybe I'm kind of dumb, but I, I can't foresee what's on the other side right. of that. Right. I can't even look into the transition. I, I have a hunch that to the point you're making, and I know you had Clark Miller on the program before and he's, he talks about this all the time, but mm -hmm. if you're not very wealthy, um, it's probably going to hurt a little bit more. Right. Yeah. Um, I think that's almost a given. And then we have to think about like so how I, you deal with that. I, yeah. I would actually say there is the potential for if you're not wealthy or if you're poor, it's going to hurt an awful lot. Agreed. Um, if we sort of take the route of, of permissionless innovation, which basically sort of says, let the market, let society just work it out and we're not going to interfere. Yeah. Because you're going to get some people. And if you get to the point where being on the grid costs more and more or you begin to discover that the grid is unreliable and you cannot afford That's right. to get your energy from anywhere else. You suffer big time. Well, yeah. you suffer big time. And then all of the other pieces of your community and society yes. who touch you, your employer, That's the right. other businesses, the other utilities that you, you know, feed into, everybody suffers. So this isn't a thing where we can say, 
It's not like when you, you know, it's not like when you stub your toe and then your toe hurts, but you can put your foot up if you're fortunate enough to not have <laughs> right. a job that requires you to be on your feet all day long. Right. But you can put your foot up and then your stub toe doesn't impact every other single that, thing that you right. do. But everything is connected. Every person this, is connected. This right? will be a lot of hurt if it isn't yeah. managed, which then brings us um, to the, the question of, of policy. and. and what is the role of government from local to the national level mm -hmm. in creating a framework where the pain is managed or minimized or controlled somehow so you have a smoother transition? It's never going to be pain-free. No, of course but, not. But you can make it sort of less of a train wreck and, and more of just a sort of an inconvenient bit of shunting. So here's one fundamental decision I think we have to make. And right now, I don't, I don't think, at least in the US and probably anywhere else in the world, we're, we're not capable of making this decision right now. So one of the things I pointed out is that if you look at, at where the retail cost of electricity comes from, you know, a little bit less than 60% of this is generation, the rest is transmission distribution. So if you look at, you know, we talked about solar and battery storage getting cheaper, cheaper, cheaper. People get very excited when they say, well, solar's cheaper than retail, solar's cheaper than wholesale. Those are both interesting points. The even more interesting point is when solar, and this will happen, and that I'll, I'll, I'll put, uh, I'll guarantee, solar plus storage will be cheaper than just the cost of transmission and distribution. Right. Okay. And then at that point, it's, you know, I hear people talk about fusion and miracles and whatever and energy. I'm like, I, mm -hmm. none of this matters. Yeah. Right. It's all irrelevant because you, the grid is not viable at that right. point. Yeah. Right. So right. the first fundamental question you have to ask is, do, is the grid, if you take a hard and honest look at not, again, not hundreds of years in the future, 10 to 15 years in the future, mm -hmm. yep. at most, is the grid still viable economically right. at that point? Right. Or is it just, or, and, and it doesn't mean that you have to get rid of it per se. Maybe it's a, it's a public works issue. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Maybe it's a thing that we're going to keep it just because we feel that's a society that we want to have, that the grid is better than fully distributed. And or we may decide we've moved on from that, that that was yeah. part of our history that doesn't need to be pursued. Agreed. And if you, you know, to, to take the long historical views, as Heather's pointing out, if, you know, we've been in this, it seems like, well, there's no other way. And it's like you point out, well, 130 some years ago, we had a fully distributed energy system. Yep, yes. that's exactly Driven by right. moving pellets of wood around yep. in different places and sometimes coal, right? So, yeah, yeah. you know, do we go back to that, but a high tech version of that or is it different? So that's a question. And there's, there's competing schools of thought on that, right? So there's some people that say, well, everything's going to be distributed. It's just about deploying. There's also people that point out in terms of renewables that, uh, both, and there, there's very serious conversations about this, both in the U.S. and in Asia, about you could make a super grid. Um, so mm -hmm. you, and right now in the U.S., there's essentially three grids, the East, the West, and Texas. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So they said, well, what if you connected the grids and had more robust transmission so that when you're getting lots of solar in, let's say, California, but mm -hmm. people in St. Louis are wanting to use lots of electricity because it's 8 o'clock at night and they're sure. they're cooking and watching TV and, and doing right. you know, washing clothes, et cetera, yes. could you yeah. pump that energy across? Um, yeah. So that's a viable, that, that would cost you know a lot of money, but that's sure. a viable way to, to do it. But then there's like, well, why don't we just do distributed batteries? Well, I was going to say, yeah, yeah, plus the, the, one of the downside is you're building an increasingly complex system. And we already know yeah. with, with grids that they are highly vulnerable to unanticipated events. Well, right. unanticipated events, which then invites a conversation about national security, right. for example. Right. But I think that we will need to save that for uh -huh. another day. Uh -huh. So well, I mean, I actually, I've got to put another placeholder here uh -huh. for okay. another day. So what really fascinates me is how we got to the point where solar is so attractive and so viable. And that gets into the fundamental research that led us to this point. But that conversation sure. about the value of, mm -hmm. of basic research is definitely more.
All right. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you, guys. Thank you. For more where that came from, check out the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at sfis.asu.edu. Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at ASU. Mark Van Hare created our music. Ana Lopez is our production assistant. Our website is futureoutloud.org. Subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or SoundCloud or wherever you get your fine podcasts.